Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 9th of February, 2021. What an amazing podcast I've got for you today. I had the chance to sit down and talk with Jake Muse, who is one of the co-founders of Maui Nui, a company based in Hawaii that wild harvests deer and turns them into incredible venison products. It's a really intriguing story because it's this combination of uh, marketing and ecology and a management of an, an invasive species. We talk about deer farming and why that wasn't possible with Axis Deer on Hawaii, uh, along with making the best use of the latest technology to allow his company to bring this product to the market in a place where the harvesting of wild game and the consumption by the public was there basically just wasn't a framework to be able to do that. So we we really dig into that as well as the the economics of conservation. Uh, I can't wait to bring this to you. So I'm going to keep the next part of the intro really quick. Of course, I have to thank the Patreon supporters, which in the top tier this month include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RDContracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash's Talking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and the team at Galax Clothing. If you would like to support this podcast, uh, and it, it really does make a huge difference to putting these out, please head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace, and you can have a look at the different tiers of support. And if you don't want to sign up to a Patreon account to do that, you can just head over to byronpace.com, uh, click the podcast um, tab at the top, and on that page, there is a way to donate. So for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support this show. So if you enjoyed the conversation that I have today, some support would be massively appreciated. However, there are other ways that you can help me with this podcast. And that's just, first of all, simply by listening. Uh, the fact that you guys listen week in, week out uh, keeps me doing it. Uh, and secondly, go and share it with a friend. The more people listening, the better. A rate and review. I've had a couple of really nice reviews uh, recently. In fact, I might even be able to bring up one while I am speaking now. Let me have a look. Um, yes, two reviews in the last week. Um, one of my favorite overall podcasts and clearly uh, clearly the favorite in the hunting, conservation, and building sustainable community sphere. Tempered, insightful, and informed discu discussions on controversial... Uh, I need to expand this. Uh, on controversial topics relating to our natural world. Of particular note, the conversation with Bill Roden is exceptional, and its discussion on outdoor writing and the dedication it requires to excel in the outdoor space. Thank you very much, KDB. Uh, on That's all I have, KDB, uh, on Apple Podcasts. So, yeah. Thank you. Alan Peters also gave a very, very nice uh, review of the podcast. So I really appreciate it. If you don't want to write something, then just rating also makes a massive difference. Of course, uh, and the last thing I will say before we jump into this interview is these podcasts are also supported by Modern Huntsman. Um, head over to modernhuntsman.com to check them out. I am the conservation editor for that publication. And every two weeks, we give you the chance to win a copy of, uh, of the publication. And two weeks ago, we ran a competition 
uh, you could either email into the show or you could comment on one of the social media posts. So I put up a picture of the front cover of Volume 6, and I wanted you just to tell me what it was. And I picked a winner at random uh, of the people who correctly identified that it was uh, basically the the ripples of a blood drop in a pool of blood from a... Um, a seal that had been harvested from one of the stories that is in volume six. And Victoria Ireland 25, that is the Instagram name. You are the winner. So please reach out to the show podcast at paceproductionsuk.com and I will get a volume of Modern Huntsman out to you. And I will also give you all the opportunity to win another copy. And all you simply have to do is just head over to the Modern Huntsman website and subscribe. So all the new subscribers, uh, yes, this is going to be limited to just new subscribers. So I'm sure there are some of you who listen to this show who haven't subscribed to the Modern Huntsman website. So just head over to um, modernhuntsman.com, stick your email on the subscription list. They don't send out junk. It's just if you like the content on this show and you like the content that's in that publication, then that's the kind of stuff that gets sent out um, on email. And uh, it's it's not spamming your inbox, um, I promise you, um, because I see some of the stuff that, that comes out and I also contribute to it as well. So head over there, add your email to the subscription list and uh, everyone who has done that over the next two weeks will pick a name at random and you could be the winner of your very own copy of Modern Huntsman. So I won't keep you any longer. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jake Muse. Jake, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Brilliant to have you on today, all the way from Hawaii. You are the first person from Hawaii that I've ever had on the podcast. That's fantastic, man. Uh, pleasure to be here, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully, a visit out here prompts some more folks to be on this podcast for you from Hawaii. Well, I, I, if if this, these were slightly different times and uh, travel was a little easier, I would have made it a good excuse to come to <laughs> Hawaii to do this in person. I, how, how come I get the feeling the entire Modern Huntsman team would have made that same excuse? <laughs> well, if he's going, maybe we should all go too. Yeah, I think I might have had some tag-alongs. Yeah, I think um, I think a couple of the guys did have a, tr- a trip planned out here, and I, um, I think it got canceled for one reason or the other, but... Yeah, I mean, there's uh, a lot of trips being canceled. Having you guys eventually, for sure. Yeah, well, I've never been. I've never been to oh. Hawaii before. Well, didn't you come? You came like 90% of the way there, aren't you? Didn't you spend some time on the continent in California and a couple different places? Oh, I'm still, I'm still there. I'm still in LA. Yeah. Wow. I know. A short. I mean, it is only a short hop, but uh, I don't know. Are you guys actually allowing people? On a serious note, are you? Are people actually allowed to go to Hawaii right now? Yeah. So. They are, they have to have a negative test uh, upon, well, right now it's within uh, a negative test 72 hours prior to arriving. Okay. They're already looking at what like a second test might look like. And whereas isolation, like any island ecosystem or any of these things, like isolation usually doesn't serve us very well as a function of food security or anything. In this particular instance, it does. Yeah, um, Hawaii is doing as a you know as it relates to numbers, doing better than the vast majority of places. So we're thankful for that. But um, there's no right answers with COVID, man. We've got you know 90 percent of our economy is based on tourism, which got completely shut down. And um, yeah, it's been it's been tough, but it's been tough for everybody. But we're thankful there isn't a lot of community spread, and uh, things are slowly starting to open it back up, and we have the ability to control 
you know, who's coming in and out and how they're, they're tested. So yeah, hopefully, um, I don't think there'll be a return to normal, but things are looking up for sure. And are you guys, uh, rolling out vaccine efficiently there? Yeah. Um, for the most part, I think Hawaii's on the back end, a lot of things associated with the U S but, um, yeah, I know like a lot of our front healthcare workers are getting it. Our USDA inspectors just got it. Um, we, if we choose to, are, are next in line um, as, you know, what we're doing with venison here is definitely considered critical infrastructure. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah, and, um, you know, as soon as it hit, food banks started calling and we've done, you know, over 50,000 pounds of donations in the past six months. And that's equated to, you know, 100,000 plus meals. And so, yeah, we 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 took all of like a week off to take a take a breath and figure out what was going on and then we put some really cool parameters in place and then we went right back to work we don't we don't see anybody anyway we work in the dark (laughs) we come and go in the dark and the the crew has been amazing they've stayed really tight and kept their circles really small and yeah everybody stayed safe and healthy so we're we're thankful well that's brilliant well i just let's let's backtrack here a bit because i want to dig into that the work that you've been doing i didn't know that you you'd been involved in that and of course you're supplying food so that is it's a frontline essential service for people to survive um and you very kindly sent me um a couple of boxes uh, a week or two ago i actually have i'm going to rustle a little bit because i have some of it on the desk here not the stuff that's in the freezer but i have some of the the dried and cured stuff i've got the, the the original venison sticks and also the venison bar um and we had uh, what uh, we made stuffed peppers the other day with one of the venison uh, oh. mince packs as well. It was it was brilliant. I mean, I eat a lot of venison anyway. My freezer at home is like ninety percent stuff that I've hunted or sourced somewhere. Uh, yeah. You know, even if even if it's not venison that I've actually gone and hunted and shot myself, I'll um, if, depending on time and if I'm traveling around, and I don't have time to fill the freezer at the end of the season. I'll go to a local estate and I'll go and buy a carcass and process it myself and, and put it Very in. Cool. But this is this is back in Scotland, obviously. So I am like well accustomed to eating venison a lot of the time. I know that for the sort of the wider public, the idea of eating venison is maybe a little bit foreign and a little bit exotic. There's been big campaigns at home um, to try and get more people to consume venison. But before we get into that, let's talk about Maui Nui and how it started. Uh, What was was the catalyst to get Maui Nui up and, and running? And also talk about how on earth that works in a place like Hawaii? Because I would imagine a lot of people listening to this would be like, deer, lots of deer in Hawaii and enough deer to have a trade in venison products. It probably doesn't compute for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, so a couple of those questions, I mean, two of those questions we got to take really far back, both personally and then a little history with that. Yeah, sure. Um, We we got all the time in the world. Yeah, I'll... uh, I guess I'll start with, uh, I guess on the personal side, you know, very similar to you. Uh, and I, I don't know if this is the case for you, but I grew up in a family that, you know, we depended on shooting a moose sometime in fall to make sure the freezer was full for the winter. I grew up in uh, northern Canada, uh, a small town called Rainbow Lake where that, where that was right on the Northwest Territories border. And um, my dad was in the oil industry and chased oil around. And I remember 
like we would spend our summers like further down south at at this like this great lake where it was nice and warm and i remember there always being this anxiety and tension because <laughs> my mom would have to essentially it was a seven hour drive to like the closest town and my mom would essentially like be chirping my dad every once in a while like you sure we're gonna get a moose because i'm not buying any meat um and uh, so i think you know to start answering your question a lot of this comes from i think the place that meat and or like wild game meat was already always a part of always a part of my lifestyle so then when I moved to same surprise that you're talking about, when I, I, I played volleyball and um, did so at a pretty high level for a long time and got asked to uh, play volleyball, uh, Division One volleyball for the University of Hawaii, um, which is not a bad place to be asked to go and play volleyball. Well, and they were super smart. Like imagine I, and so quick backtrack, I went from uh, Northern Alberta to Nova Scotia, Canada on the East Coast and started surfing out there. And so the recruiting trip to Hawaii was like, here's, here's the university, which we like drove through in five minutes and here's the beach and here's a pair of board board shorts that you've never worn before. And here's a surfboard. And we were like, remember, this is like late nineties. So like every pair of board shorts in Canada had like that interior mesh in there, (laughs) like like what they were presenting to me, like with warm water and real board shorts. And like, I was just like, I was just like, where do I sign? Like, yeah. and I had, like I'm in. Yeah. I had zero other contacts and happened to be like one of the best volleyball programs in the country. Um, and the reason I mentioned that is they funny, another funny story. They screwed up my dorm assignment. I was supposed to be in the dorms with a lot of other, like probably California volleyball players that year and a bunch of other guys coming in. And they accidentally assigned me to the dorm for all of the local like Hawaii kids that couldn't make grades out of high school. So they were doing like the summer program to try and get into university. And then in this specific wing, it was all of the boys from a small island called Molokai. And Molokai is 10 miles by 30 miles, has 7,000 people, <laughs> really tight-knit community. And... You also have to remember being from Canada, I'd never seen like a Polynesian person before and rolling into like the front of this dorm on the first day, seeing my first like six foot five, 300 pound person. And I rolled in and they were like, you in the right place, boy? Like Johnson Hall B, like room 201. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, looked at me and there was silence. And there was like six of them in like the front foyer area. And they're like, boy, we're going to eat you. And I was just like, oh, he's like, um, and to their credit, like they're very, they're very much is something to the saying, like of Aloha spirit to their credit. 10 minutes later, they were best friends. Yeah. And like I never again had to think about friendship and safety and secure. Like they were just, they were such, and they continue to be like such amazing people. Um, There's a reason they're amazing at rugby. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because they're built like tanks. Oh, like, like, I just had never seen anybody with like bone structure like that. I was like, yeah. what are you? Yeah. So the reason I mentioned that is being on the East coast of Canada, it was too far to go home for Christmas, Thanksgivings. And we had a pretty, like pretty crazy school and volleyball schedule. So I started going to the Island of Molokai with my best friend and family. Um, and Molokai had access deer, which was a complete surprise to me. And 
you know, a pleasant surprise. I was a broke college kid. Like I'd have been, I probably would have starved through college without like a, this family, but B the accessibility to access to you on this Island. It used to cost you like 50 bucks and you could jump on a small plane and take a cooler and go hunt all weekend and fill it up and then bring it home and try and jam it all into your tiny little college fridge. Um, so I mentioned all of that to say, I didn't start, this didn't start off as like, there wasn't some like, aha, grand moment that like, well, we're going to do all of these things. It started off as very much an affinity and like love for this animal through like recreational and subsistence hunting. And then I think like a start to a deeper dive in behavior when like, they're just such smart, adaptable animals. Um, So I wanted to like learn a little bit more. And then I remember like, as I was rolling through college and I got to my capstone class for marketing and management i was like i started to recognize some of the detriment this animal was doing like we started to see these events where like severe drought they were dying from starvation like the in small groups or like these big rainfall events we were seeing these massive like sediment plumes on our reefs or like having the opportunity to interact in some of our like critical watershed areas and seeing the impact we're having there so like it was this gradual understanding of their total impact and or like the total value they were bringing to our communities. So I remember getting to the end of my college career and there was a capstone class that kind of culminated in like a business plan competition. And I was like, well, I've got the answer. We're going to do what New Zealand did and we're going to, you know, domesticate and or habituate this animal. And, and that's going to be the answer. Co- turns out, I won the business camp plan competition was completely wrong. <laughs> um, even though access to have like one of the most prolific growth rates on the planet, because um, even though they cast their antlers each year, their testosterone levels are still high enough that they can sperm is still viable year round. Unlike you know, most other deer species, uh, even though they're one of the most prolific breeding species. And as you kind of hopefully were pointed to, taste unbelievable oh yeah Um, there's been nobody that's been able to successfully habituate and or domesticate them so unlike red deer in which is the predominant species in new zealand that they farm and we farm some at home as well they've not done that with axis no and you would have thought with those contributing factors and the reason was there's one guy out out of australia that was able to get kind of like somewhat close. And what they were finding was even third, fourth generation bottle fed fawns, when they got into group sizes of like more than seven to 10, they would resort back to these, like it was like they're a back to a straight wild animal. Like they would start slamming fences. They're just, and, and anecdotally, I understand this, like they are such finicky animals, like in, and especially as we see during harvesting, in herds of like six or seven in our harvesting process, we can typically harvest like several of them. In in large herds of 50 plus or more, we oftentimes don't even get the opportunity to interact with them because in these large herds, they're like, they are so cued in. They are so alert to anything that's going on. Um, and I think that's what's translated to the inability to, I won't even call it domesticate, but habituate these animals to some level of like farmability or, or ranching, right? So, um, and you know, Australia has had access to here. They continue to do 
Uh, I know there's been experiments like multiple across Australia and it's just landed on there. They're, they're just undomesticatable. Um, so business plan was completely wrong. Uh, um, even though I think I won a couple thousand dollars for it. Well, that's and, always useful. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, part of, I think part of what, what spurred, well, for sure, one of the missing pieces was during that, um, during the workup of that last year and in putting that business model together, uh, I was collecting as much data as I could out of, out of India and in Australia and nobody would answer me. Like I'd, you'd get like these, you know how you can get like a snippet of an article, like a scientific article, and then you have to like request to find more. Or you oh, don't to- worry. I know that. Yeah. I mean, now I'm back at university studying. So now I have access to all of that. But before okay. when I was just writing, like as a, as a writer, I I used to use uh, I'm actually I'm, uh, I'm trying to decide whether I was going to mention it on the podcast and I'm not going to mention it. There is actually a a site that you can use that basically has access to everything, but it sits oh. in Russia <laughs> and you just you just put in the DOI and uh. you can almost access any paper. But I know this frustration. It's it's a conversation that's had a lot so, in academic circles. So that frustration <laughs> pivoted for me to and and. Well, I'm, I'm happy to admit it now. That frustration pivoted to me to say, you know what? I'm going to open up the Axis Deer Institute, and it's going to be wow. a profit, and I'm going to be the executive director of one. Okay. And sure enough, all I had to do is then at the bottom of like header of the email say, hey, I'm the executive director of the Axis Deer Institute. I'd love to get this information. And all of a sudden, like information out of India and Australia came pouring in. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> um, and uh, the reason I mention that is we, over the next couple of years, I played professional volleyball throughout Europe. Um, and over the next couple of years, it just became this odd, crazy obsession because I had the tool to start like collecting all of this information on population dynamics and home ranges and gestational, like all of those things, right? And I'm not a wildlife biologist. Like I, I, I never admit to be. I'm just obsessed with one particular species. And what happened was, I was lucky enough to meet my wife. Uh, I was spending my summers back on the island of Molokai when I was done in Europe, hunting and fishing and just relaxing. And was lucky enough to meet my wife there, and or then to, soon to be wife. Uh, we spent a year in in Europe, and when we came back, somebody. So there's only currently deer on three islands throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Somebody illegally introduced Axis deer to the Big Island, where the, where there was no where there was no deer. So and what? Sorry, what year is this? This roughly? is this would be two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, maybe about ten years ago. So a decade ago, okay. Yeah. And just uh, before you carry on oh, this okay. part of the story from the 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 introdu- this illegal introduction to the this to the largest island, uh, how did Axis Dia get there in the first place? Yeah, great, great segue. So um, late eighteen hundreds. And, and I can give my wife credit for this as well. Um, she translates old Hawaiian newspapers. She helps digitize them. Um, really, really cool side fact. Only 5% of all of our Hawaiian newspapers, they were one of the most literate societies on the planet at that time. Only 5% of their newspapers have been translated and digitized. Oh, wow. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. Well, 90% of their culture is buried in there somewhere. So that's another, that's another story, but um, 
she helps me find language. It was previously thought that they were just a gift to King Kamehameha in the late 1800s. Um, she helps me find language that he specifically, and we can't find language that he paid for it, but he specifically sought out, King Kamehameha sought out this, this particular species, had a company called the Matheson Trading Company go to India, bring them, like, there's records of them coming down the Yangtze River, like the name of the boat, the Loch Nagar, like, she was able to translate all of Loch that. Loch Nagar, that's, that's Loch a place Nagar. in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, so that was the name of the boat, which is really interesting. Wow, very cool. Uh, um, so Axis deer were introduced to the island of Molokai in the late 1800s. And what's crazy is there is there are articles in the paper as early as 1910 of them hiring sharpshooters out of California to kill 5,000 plus deer because they were already like decimating upland forests. Interesting. So w- were there no large herbivores on the island before oh. the deer got there? Yeah. So being, I mean, the most isolated landmass on the planet, yeah. there, were, there was no like herbivores, period. I mean, the biggest, the biggest mammal was a bat. Okay. So um, all of the unique species and ecosystems here evolved without any of that pressure, right? Yeah. So, so that makes a... I mean, that very quickly, as you're already pointing out, becomes a big problem yeah. when an ecosystem has developed over millions of years without this very specific pressure. Yeah. So access to your get to Molokai in the late 1800s begin to proliferate, you know, immediately. Perfect, perfect, perfect weather, perfect condition, perfect habitat, and obviously no predators. Um, and they happen to introduce the one deer that's able to breed year round. So you're looking at like in an emerging population, you're looking at like anywhere from 30 to 33% growth on an annual basis, um, which is absurd. Um, and so access to get to Molokai in the 1920s, the then owners of the Island of Lanai, which is right next door, uh, decided to introduce them to the Island of Lanai as well. And they quickly you know, grew, had similar impacts and sounds like reached, I think, what, what I guess what could be considered an established and or carrying capacity on that island. And we've done an, an island oil survey over there. And then Axis Deer don't get to Maui until the 1960s. And Maui being, you know, 4X the size of those two islands, um, that population is is still very much emerging. There's probably 50 to 60,000 animals right now and looking like, you know, on the upward trend to like 210,000 animals over the next 20 to 30 years. I mean, how, how big is the island in landmass? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I was just trying to I was just trying to rationalize the numbers in terms of areas that I know and carrying capacities at home. I mean, I, you have... Uh, a much more fertile and lush environment than the uplands of of Scotland, <laughs> which is yeah. fairly uh, low grade fodder. Well, for I think a great example is Molokai is, um, and, and we we'll we'll get to this, but we we're able to do extremely accurate part of that project on the Big Island that I'll get back to is was finding a way to increase detection rates because we were dealing with a project where they dropped off four animals over an air, like a hundred square mile area. And what is that? Like 25,000 hectares. Like, and they didn't know where they were. So we had to find a way to increase detection rates. And I mentioned that to say, 
we developed a process with military grade forward looking infrared to significantly increase detection rates with helicopter surveys and then translate that into survey protocols. Um, so we've done extensive surveys on all three islands and uh, bring it, in bringing it back to Molokai. Molokai is 10 miles by 30 miles. There are, we know there's at least 50 to 60,000 deer on the island and there's only 7,000 people, um, which is, uh, I mean, you can pull density rates. The only density rates I have for comparison are like Texas Hill Country where they have some of the densest deer, like wild deer populations on the continent. And it's like 3x the density. Um, so again, a, a combination of a, a bunch of perfect storms here. But I, I guess with that like short history lesson, taking it back to what I was mentioning on the Big Island is um, – Having this access to your, to your institute when the, when the animals were illegally introduced to the Big Island, which is both our largest island and the ag hub of, you know, Hawaii for sure as a function of food security, there was an immediate push. Um, and invasive species issues across the board are always the case in Hawaii, but there's an immediate push to try and do something about this. And we happened to be like just the only person that knew anything about the species. Uh, because there had almost been no work done on them. There had been a couple studies on home range and a few other things on the other three islands. And we had uh, one guy do, yeah, there, there was very little. So we picked up the contract to remove these deer. And like I said, it was a massive area. It was a hundred square miles. Um, it was a, an incredibly like rugged and, and um, like really tough area to work in as a function of like any type of ground surveys or camera traps or any like the typical approaches. And it took us three years, but we ended up finding them all. And, and really the key there was in, um, in that about the second year, we just realized we weren't going to get there unless we found ways to increase detection rates. So we worked with some of the, there's a large military presence here in Hawaii and we worked with some of them to develop a process with one of their, their field binocular units to do surveys out of the helicopter. Wow. And okay. It was like, it was astonishing. Like at a thousand feet, I was like, we could, we can pick up mongooses and beehives and it's That's like incredible. we use for search and rescue and all kinds of different things. Um, but it, it in the end was what allowed us to find, you know, those four animals or that needle in the haystack. And then on top of that, it allowed us to, obviously remove them as well over a period of a couple months once we once we had found them so so, that, so it was purely a a, a a seek and destroy mission if you like and are there no deer there now there's no deer there now yes okay well that's amazing because it, it wouldn't have taken long in terms of time for that to be completely unmanageable and almost impossible yeah well and that's and that's the case with well and this leads into kind of the next part of the story 90, I would say 90% of invasive species initiatives on the islands fail for that yeah. very reason is you don't catch them quick enough. And we've all like looked at what that, like that invasion curve looks like. You don't catch them quick enough. And by then, by the time you're seeing them, they're too late. And there's yeah. 10x what you're seeing. When we spend, I don't want to guess, we spend like $8 million a year on trying to control, they're called cokey frogs. Um, and nothing's happening. Like it's a complete waste of money. So 
It's a big problem. I mean, globally, invasive species are a massive problem. They're one of the top five drivers of biodiversity loss in the world. Yeah. Top five drivers, according to the IPBS. And and Hawaii happens to also be the endangered species capital of the world. (laughs) And it very often is the case that the biggest issues with invasive species just happen to also be in biodiversity hotspots. Yeah. So... Long story short, the success of that project um, and what happened to be completely under budget had we started getting phone calls from the island of Maui from ranchers that said, like, okay, it looks like you guys know what you're doing. Get over here and take care of it. Like, we don't care what you do. You just just shoot them and leave them. Like, they were calling them spotted rats. And you got to remember, Maui didn't get deer until the 1960s, so it's still very much emerging. And having, you know, significant negative impacts and, you know, they didn't, you know, there's a very different take to axis deer on the island of Molokai where they've been there for a hundred years. They're very much ingrained in the culture. Um, each, you know, each island is very different. I mean, even each landowner is very different in how they treat this animal. But on the island of Maui, we start getting these phone calls after finishing up this project on the big island that says like, just get over here, we'll pay you, just shoot them all. And we couldn't do it. Like we couldn't, I couldn't bring myself. And I think it's just this attachment attachment to both subsistence hunting and like the love and affinity we have for this animal that started recreational. So that, you know, in rounding out this story, that was the start of Maui New Events. That was the phone call that said, okay, there has to be a better way to do this. Why can't we like harvest these animals on a scale required to like meet the the requirements of these large landowners and eat them. And that was, that started the very long road of the first phone call to the USDA, the, and like the folks that govern the federal meat inspection act throughout the U S and saying like, I want to harvest wild access deer and sell it. (laughs) And Mm. imagine how that went. Like it's weird because uh, to, to a lot of our European listeners on the podcast, that's like very normal. Uh, we have oh, very really? well established, yeah, we have very well established game markets, and it's a uh, <laughs> when I have conversations with my American friends, um, they find it very weird that we can sell venison. Your average person is not really selling venison because your average person is going out and shooting a deer and breaking it down, and putting it in their freezer. But uh, a lot of the landowners. Uh, across Europe actually, but I can specifically speak to Scotland where I live, are they have their own management plans and they're culling exactly the same as you are a large number of deer every year in order to balance their impact on the habitat. I mean, they are native species, so they do actually belong there, but you know the, the, the whole story of predators being wiped out hundreds and hundreds of years ago, yeah. and so humans are that... Um, sort of balancing point, if you like, through active management. And so, you know, there's one estate up the road from me. I think they've got a head of about uh, three or 4,000 deer. And I'm not sure how many deer they'd be putting through every year. But, you know, it's many hundreds uh, that are being culled by a handful of gamekeepers who are employed on the estate. And then that goes into a, 
a game market, and that the game market is huge in in the UK, and some of it gets con- uh, processed and consumed inside the UK. A lot of it, especially at particular times of the year, like during the rut, get exported to Europe because they've got slightly different tastes to us. So, the idea that w- it would be a strange thing to try and harvest with rifles wild protein via deer and put it into a, a you know, process it into an end product and sell it to the wider public is no one would even bat an eyelid to that at home, really. Yeah, and I knew that's really interesting. I knew that was um, obviously knew that was the case in New Zealand, yeah, uh, and and how their deer industry transitioned from essentially wild harvesting to you know them pivoting to like live capture and farming and how what you know what all of that looked like. Yeah, so predominantly, my understanding out in New Zealand, although they're they're still managing a lot of. It's not like it was back in like the no. 1920s and 30s, but uh, the the in terms of wild populations and these the, these guys who would go out the, these contracts colors for the government and they would go out and spend six months just shooting deer, yeah. uh, and they weren't even doing anything with them. I think they were just collecting tails for their bounty. Uh, but now the vast majority of venison that comes out of New Zealand, and we actually even import venison from New Zealand, uh, is farmed. So it's a it's yeah. a very different thing to a a part of a, a a management system for wild species yeah and so so two things there that come to mind is um one obviously there you know there was significant commercial harvesting of buffalo you know in the 1910s 20s 30s here within the u.s and there's been lots of documentation on that and and obviously the detriment like the detriment of those populations through commercial harvesting and that created, I think, a lot of the rules governing the use of native species yeah. on lands and, and completely like understand like the thought process there on how that might affect resource availability. Um, so, so completely understand what that is and, and why you might get an odd look here and there, because I mean, that's just not, that's not something that's done on, I would call it the continent, but on like the, within the continental U.S., but the other part of it is the rules that govern meat inspection for human consumption are significantly more stringent in the U.S. than, and I'm only really familiar with New Zealand, but in New Zealand, wild harvesting, um, when they were currently doing that, they were able to, from helicopter, shoot an animal, gut it, get it cleaned up, sometimes even like get it on a barge starting to cool, and then get it to a facility where... Uh, an inspector and veterinarian could inspect it and say like that animal was healthy. And we're not able to do that here. What, what was probably our biggest roadblock is we have to have an inspector present. It's called um, anti-mortem inspection. We have to have an inspector present while that animal is alive. Yeah. So (laughs) that, that animal has to be pre-approved while it's still alive. That sounds like such a ridiculous yes. piece of red tape. Yeah. and But that particular piece of red tape, which is a part of the Federal Meat Inspection Act, which was dictated all the way back in like the 30s and 40s, um, federal rules are hard to change. So that was our that was our primary roadblock in moving Maui Nui forward, where it would seem, well, that is, I know that isn't the case in New Zealand. They said, no. You can't do this because you can't follow the rules of anti-mortem inspection. You can't follow the rules required for us to pre-inspect an animal before rendering, before we kill it. And I said, 
Well, I think I can. Like we have in interacting them with the night and all of the like military grade flurry equipment we have, I think you guys can properly view this animal at rest in motion. I mean, the binocular unit we use, Byron, like at six miles, I can tell you the difference between like a goat and a deer if they're standing next to each other. Wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> at crazy. 100, at a hundred yards, I can pick up like the smallest abscess or like an old injury or like we can tell via the, like the heat ratio throughout the stomach, if it's pregnant, like the data I have on that animal. That's is incredible. Better. You can, yeah. you can tell just by the difference in temperature. Oh, absolutely. Externally. Externally. Um, That's amazing. The, so the data we can present the inspector with, and this was like the premise of basically us getting a no for several years is we kept saying we could do it. And they're like, you can't do it. And eventually they're just like, fine. We'll come look. Stop calling us. <laughs> um, I love because, it because what we had to do, um, you know, we had to find an interim solution. So what we what we did is when we started, we just did pet food. So these folks on Maui are calling. We're trying to find a solution to be able to eat this animal. Part of it as well, which is crazy, is if the product isn't inspected, we also can't donate it. So we couldn't donate it to food banks or do anything else because it has to be an inspected product. So we couldn't even like utilize it for the community at large, which is also ridiculous. A hunter can donate something like individually, but any form of like like commercial operation, you can't do it. It's illegal. So there's all these crazy roadblocks and red tape. Um, so over a period of time, as I'm trying to figure out how to get through this red tape, we started a program so to, to do pet food. And at least like, you know, it was a solution and we knew we were working towards something and it, it wasn't perfect, but it was a way for us to at least utilize those animals um, and start to provide like the service required to like balance these populations on these large ranchers. And so what ended up happening is, and part of it as well is we were trying to develop a business and our commercial operation under the premise, can we harvest enough animals on a nightly basis consistently enough that we can actually like build a business around um, because and I don't know what it was. Like we were unwilling to entertain the idea of penning these animals or baiting these animals or doing drop nets or all the other things. And I think what we knew or understood was these animals stressed out so easily when they died under type of like under any type of significant stress, it really affect, like it really does affect flavor and meat quality and a bunch of other things. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Long story short, the USDA finally says, fine, we'll come look. And so they come out like one night, let's call this like year two of 10. And they're like, they were absolutely blown away. And they're like, A, we've never seen an animal like die under stress-free conditions. doesn't matter like how well you raise an animal. It's still, you know, for the most part, unless you're doing it on your own farm, goes in a trailer, goes you know, through a corral system, goes into a press, you know, especially in the U.S. Um, so so we were meeting all of, like, the parameters for um, anti-mortem inspection, and they were able to view all of these animals. And then the the last hurdle was we, would, we had to be able to operate at the same proficiency as a brick-and-mortar facility, and that most often related to rendering. So we had to be able to kill an animal, which means – that animal has to be rendered immediately unconscious, which means you have to break the skull cap. 
And we had to be able to do that at 95% efficiency. Um, so part of the, and, and what we didn't realize at the moment, and we now know is the process of shooting an animal that's unstressed at a hundred yards, that's staring right at you with no lights on, extremely advanced, like forward looking, like infrared equipment on both like binocular units and rifle scopes is significantly easier than a cow that's jumping around in a pen and you're trying to shoot it in the back of the head. So we, we found we were operating at better proficiencies at like 99% proficiencies compared to slaughter facilities. So I mentioned that to say a combination of them being able to view the animal, us being able to render it properly. And then on the back end of it, us knowing through our pet food program that we could harvest enough animals each night. We got all of those yeses and we were like, okay, we can do this. And the next step was then to invest in all of the necessary, like we had to basically purchase a USDA mobile slaughter facility, which was extremely expensive and I had to remortgage my house to do it. (laughs) So, um, what a story. There's two things I want, I want to follow up on here before I hear like the next phase for you actually like remortgaging your house and starting the business. Um, so the first one is it's an interesting conundrum here because I completely understand what you're saying about wanting to find a way that the Axis deer can exist in the lands, continue to exist in the landscape, but that you're fulfilling the needs of the various landowners and farmers and uh, negating some of the negative impact on uh, the native flora and fauna for that matter. Um, But if you really boil it down, and this goes to, I mean, they're having this discussion or they've been having this discussion in New Zealand over the last couple of years with their tar population. Mm. It is a non-native species. Yeah. So it doesn't belong there. Okay, it has been there for a very long time, since the late uh, uh, 1800s. How do you make this judgment that we should actually keep it? And not actually is is the ethical and moral and responsible thing actually not to wipe the the species out? Um, uh, how do you tackle that in your mind? And, and a, what, how what do the local people think? Exactly, it's a really really good question, and it's something that um, you know I think about all the time as a function of like what is the what is the net present value? What is the total value this animal presents? And, and what does that look like in what population? And it's really interesting on like an e- ecological scale. You're absolutely right. Like they don't belong in our watersheds in our most critical ecological areas. Um, and, you know, those are public for the most part, those are public lands. So part of this puzzle is we're only allowed to operate on private land. Um, so two things come into play there when we're only op- able to operate on private land. And ultimately what makes this both legal and all of it work is the governance of that animal and the ownership of that animal falls to the private landowner as an invasive species. And is, is that, I, I'm not sure. So is that while they're, because I'm assuming these are not, they're not fenced in. So yeah. do they have ownership of those species when their feet are on their land? Is that yes. how it works? That's how it works. Yeah. Same at home. And, okay. And so what ends up happening is we don't, we, we don't stand to make that decision. What we're able to do with a landowner is say, this is how many deer you have. This is like, 
the impact they're having as a function of dry feed and, and or like this is the liability they're presenting and they understand that. And then this is the value they can have as a function of commercial harvesting. How many do you want? And so that helps us. And that, and that answer is very different for, let's say, a, you know, a golf course or a lettuce farmer who's willing to put up, you know, a fence at $30 a foot. They want zero animals. But for a rancher that has like a work trade program for recreational hunting or, um, you know, finds more value in that animal, they want just a balanced population. And it's so tough because we're not trying to proliferate an invasive species as a function of like revenue or, or built, like nobody wants more access deer. Um, so, so I guess to try and it's to answer your question is really complicated. One, ultimately the decision lies with the private landowner and two on all of these public lands, you know, Maui has 300,000 acres of public lands. We, we don't, we don't get to make that decision. That decision is dictated by the state. And that's a public, you know, in those, in those areas, that's a public resource that is sometimes managed properly, sometimes not. But for the most part, across the board in our most critical ecological areas and our watershed areas, they've already been removed. So they've already been fenced out and removed. So they're already in the places that have other forms of food production. So they're already down in those areas where a rancher is like a rancher is trying to coexist, a farmer is trying to coexist, and the what was I'm sure beautiful native dryland forests or amazing like ecosystems are already gone. So it's 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 such a tough conversation. There's so much nuance to it because every species, especially native native species, have should have the opportunity to exist, especially where they should be. Um, and so I think this is a conversation of how do we present, how are we providing a tool for the private landowners to balance populations, to, to find a balance that is a net benefit for our communities. And that, and it's very, very clear. The net benefit isn't having more access deer. The net benefit is getting it down to a population that works for both like our, like our ecology, we don't need more deer because they'll continue to put more pressure in our watershed areas. Um, works for, as a function of food security, you know, great example is we've been able to donate 50,000 pounds, like, like we talked about through COVID. Um, but, you know, if our boats stop coming in three days, all of our shelves are empty. So any function of food security for Hawaii is a positive. Um, obviously roadways and all those other things like come into play. Um, and one of the big things as well is, you know, we're actually experiencing right now, uh, our second like large die off on the island of Molokai where there's currently, you know, no large scale management outside of the hunting community, which just, no, there's no way they can keep up. We've got like thousands of deer dying right now on the island of Molokai. Uh, um, it's just from disease, I assume from high densities. No. Yeah. Just from starvation. Oh, so there's literally not enough food for all the mouths. Yeah. You can, wow scary as hell like google it and they this is the first time actually this is really interesting timing for this podcast uh yesterday was the first time ever our governor uh declared an emergency proclamation on access deer and it wasn't prompted by 
their impact as an invasive species, it's being prompted as a human health concern because they're dying all over Molokai. So they're coming into backyards and roadways. And uh, I mean, I've seen this once before. They're so lethargic from malnutrition that they're just essentially laying down and then over a period of time dying. So what is the, I mean, does the government there have a plan for this? Because it seems like there needs to be a wider or a broader view as to the management of the species. I mean, do they, Hawaii as a whole, do they want to see a core of deer remain? Or is there a, a feeling that actually in the long term they would like them not to be there? Well, I, I think in the long term, the only option is balance. And, and this comes back to a lot of like all of the other invasive species issues. In the end, the government is never going to be able to f- like force their way onto a private landowner's property that wants access deer. They're never going to be able to come in via helicopter and start like mowing down axis deer on somebody's property that doesn't that doesn't want them there or or that that wants them in some level. Um, there's, you know, what's crazy? There's no plan, Byron, and it goes and and I don't know. It's such a sensitive subject, and we've had to grow some really thick skin through the process. Um, I mean, all the way back, <laughs> my again, my wife translating Hawaiian newspapers is hilarious. Like all the way back in like the 1920s and 30s, like there's articles about the then government fighting over the management of Axis deer. Like it's 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 a problem that has never been solved. There's never been a concrete plan put forward, and I honestly think communities are so diverse in their opinions and value of different densities there never will be yeah it's it's tough man so part of that is really good question in in whether or not they belong here and i don't i don't necessarily have the answer i truly believe that they belong in balance in areas where we produce food yeah i can i i think that's definitely a uh just as you explained, we've we've reshaped those landscapes already. Yeah, and we're talking about something which is a a wild and very healthy and absolutely delicious <laughs> form of of protein. And I, I've I've said this so many times before in writing and on the podcast is that I I think that we need to consider more our responsible our responsibility to use the sustainable harvest of wild resources to supplement our intake of food and so here it's it's a really difficult conversation where exactly as you put it you're looking at the net gain so what would be the alternative so the way sometimes the way that i like to look at these things is okay so tomorrow there's no deer all of that protein that gets consumed needs to be replaced by other protein how do you do that? And is the process of doing that and achieving that through agriculture worse for the environment or better? Exactly. I don't know the answer to that, but that's something that should be, should be thought about. I would, I would think probably that with correct and sensible management of densities, 
harvesting uh, a deer species in a uh, where it is essentially living wild would be more sympathetic to the landscape than high intensity agriculture and that's before you even go into the discussion of animal welfare yeah well and hawaii's experienced that you know hawaii was known for a long time for pineapples and then for a long time for sugarcane and because we did like all that was there was monotypic ag and that was both a function of food production that didn't stay here anyway but more importantly the economy so in so again like we're 90 percent reliant on tourism at like this pandemic has pointed to more than anything, the need for diversified economic input into our communities. And like, we're small right now, but you know, I've got 12 full-time guys that have jobs that they're proud of and believe in. And we're a economic input when otherwise we're just spending money on an invasive species and we're harvesting you know, 3,000 deer a year right now, we need to be harvesting 30,000 plus deer a year, potentially over like one or two islands to even come close. So the the economic driver as well is of extreme significance for Hawaii as well. Um, so, and I mean, that's part of it as, as well. Like one of the things that, you know, it's interesting, we always like our mission is front and center, like, you know, in all of our shipping containers and everything else. And one of the things the boys are the most proud of is all of these marginal ag lands, doesn't matter if it's somebody trying to grow crops or somebody trying to raise cattle, all of these marginal ag lands, if they don't work, guess what happens? They turn into subdivisions. And Hawaii, like the price of land in Hawaii is, is so extreme that if, if ag doesn't work, the only, the only option these landowners have is to, to sell it and it turns into another subdivision. And, and you know, Maui, Molokai, Ilanai, they, they have this amazing rural country feel to them and they haven't turned into a Waikiki or a city or – and it's because there's still food production happening as a function of soil health and, and in these areas. If we don't manage access deer – None of that happens. All of these places turn into subdivisions. And when you talk to our guys, when, when you talk to like a local boy that lives on Maui, he's most proud of the idea that what he's doing is he's helping to feed his community. But, but B, the million-dollar houses that are on the beach aren't crawling up the hill because the farmer, like the farmer still works and the rancher can still like make his cattle operations work because we're – we are like we're having a, a current impact in those areas yeah it's it, it goes to or it speaks to a lot of the drivers of change in our landscape and yeah. it doesn't matter really how much you talk around it economics is is a function of what it will be used for and ultimately that's what it boils down to without government i, I mean the the regulator for that is government legislation, which can uh, circumvent the drivers of economics to some extent uh, for the kind of greater good of people. But uh, some discu- a discussion that I've been having a lot recently, like in the last couple of months, is that if we truly understood what the value to society was 
of these not even because uh, I, I we've touched so much of the land now there's not a lot that you could really point to on the planet that is untouched by humans mm. but even these landscapes that have been much more shaped or very visibly shaped by humans uh can be good for nature yes and but really understanding what the value of keeping those are and not turning you know not tarring them and uh, tarring them up and putting houses on them or turning them into intensive agriculture what is the real value of the integrity of these kind of managed ecosystems and, and i think that the truth is that we you can read across all the scientific liter literature and we really just don't have a very good way of correctly valuing that and the, the way that most people can kind of balance these things in their mind is with a monetary value, a number, because otherwise yeah. it's very complicated. Yeah. And we don't value these things enough because our time horizons are very short. We're looking for relatively short-term gains and benefits for individual people or societies and not necessarily what's 100 or 1,000 years. And if we could really value those impacts over a longer period of time, I think it would... Uh, direct funds and inform legislative changes in a manner that would be better for society as a whole. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. You mentioned that because we're, you know, in bringing it back to access deer, we're actually trying to create that exercise. And it's, it's really amazing to see, you know, in these Island ecosystems that essentially, you know, we're just, a single volcanic cone or a mountain, as that deer gets higher in elevation, it becomes less valuable to our community as a whole. And what's so interesting is, is as we move into our critical watershed areas that, you know, these, these watershed areas formed over millennium to be able to capture all of this fog and transition that into our aquifers, water in valuing like our ecosystems, water for the most isolated landmass on the planet is hands down our most valuable asset. And as these deer move closer and closer to their watersheds and have an impact in those watersheds, we can put a number on the difference between a functional watershed and what it captures and one that doesn't and has ungulates in it. That's fascinating. And we're trying to create that exercise to say, you know, coming back to our conversation of should access deer exist, if they are in the lowlands where we're producing food, their value increases as they come down the hill. If they're up in our watershed areas where there's, there is a competing asset that is more valuable than that meat, and that's water. And what's amazing is our watersheds only function with native species. So restoration in those areas is the most important thing. So it's highly nuanced, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, especially in these island ecosystems, valuing the assets and functionality of native species is so important. And for us, that most often translates to water. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great point for sure. Jake, as we uh, get towards the the end of our, our conversation, I just want to bring it back to your, your the company. We, we, we our kind of discussion we got sidetracked. It's all really important stuff to try and uh, try and understand and grapple with. But you had 
you basically borrowed a lot of money and you set your business up. Tell me what your business lo- looks like today. Obviously, as I said at the start, I- I've had the opportunity now to sample a number of your products. So, you know, what what does the business look like uh, if someone t- was to go and look up Maui Nui? Because I- and I asked this spe- uh, question specifically because as I was talking about the fact that we have um, at home in the, in the UK, we have this a game market. There are not many people um, or, or estates or, or businesses which are, or landowners, which are harvesting the deer and then turning them into an end product for the consumer. And I completely understand why you do that because the few people who I do know at home who do that, that is basically how they were able to make a, an economic enterprise is because the, some of the greatest value that you can add is actually in, proce- in processing it and turning it into a product that can be consumed rather than just selling the actual the, the meat as a the the meat carcass as a product to yeah. a to someone who is then going to break it down yeah um so a couple couple answers in there one you know from where we left off that story of like having USDA approval basically it took another 4 years up till 2019 for us to show a great enough need for them to place a full-time inspector so part of one of the hurdles we ran into was as a it's what we come under is this odd category called voluntary inspection so I can request a USDA officer to be there and he can say no so what I thought was going to be a year and like us moving forward really quickly after remortgaging the house <laughs> was a four-year period where we had to show a great enough need where they eventually placed an employee on Maui and we're able to like work consistently. And so that didn't happen until the very beginning of 2020. So if you go to MauiNuiVenison.com and you see all of these great like products and bone broth and what you're tasting there, that's just what's essentially happened this year. Uh, and then to answer your question, you know what, everything ultimately comes back to our mission of, of balancing populations. And we need the value add margins of creating a jerky product. We need those operational margin and profit margins to grow as a business. If this was, when we really looked at it, if we were just in this to make money, the answer was, you know, sell whole carcass to a bunch of restaurants and whatever else, and you'll make a decent price per pound and the business would be sustainable and you would grow, but there was never a chance of growing quick enough to balance populations, to get ahead of the growth curve, you know, specifically to get ahead of the growth curve on Maui. That is, you know, it's scary. It looks like COVID at 33% a year. Um, so the value added products are there so that, and the price you see on the website are there to justify the extreme capital expenditures to harvest an animal in the wild. So, you know, if you head over to our website, there's a great 10 to 12 minute video in there and you see like, you know, our harvest operations are mobile slaughter units and and trucks and ATVs and like the fixed cost to harvest this animal is significant. And then the CapEx required to scale that across, you know, Maui and then potentially other islands is significant. So that's, we structured the business in that manner to try and achieve our mission of balancing populations, not just have a sustainable business. Um, so if you're there now, so, so all of that leads to, you know, I spent 10 years in the field trying to figure out how to harvest this animal. And I'll tell you what, Byron, e-commerce is harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and like equally scary. Um, so, so now it's figuring out, well, well, how do we get people to help us eat our way out of this problem? Like, how do we get over the, the, the boundaries or barriers to entry to somebody seeing venison and being like, Ugh, or like, how do we have the right product fit at the right price? Like, like I said, like, and whatever I learned in college is out the door from 10 years ago. Um, so the next step of Maui Nui Venison, now that we have a working model for harvesting that we know we can scale, the next step for Maui Nui Venison is how do we find great ways for people to eat this? And, and you see that in your bone broth and all of the different like things that you'll see on the website right now. Um, I know we're running close on time without one, one good story for you, bud. Sure. I, think I, I think I told you this before about the bone broth, but I think it adds to the idea of the value of these animals and, and finding balance. So our, our, our bone broth tested so high for protein per ounce that they thought we had, the term is adulterated. They thought we had done something to the bones. So when we, te- when we were making our bone broth and we sent it in, they were like, well, this is, this, this is statistically too high in protein per ounce. This can't be right. Um, and so they tested it twice. And what ended up happening is our, is the bones from Axis deer who, you know, anecdotally, they have a choice to what they eat, right? They can jump over a six foot fence and eat the same plant on the other side of the fence. And I've seen this. Um, they were starting to also see that, and it's amazing because this is throughout Europe already, like we're starting to see a, a wild game animal as a function of nutrition also might be significantly better for you. And I mean, our mission would be the same if this was white-tailed deer and they tasted like acorns or whatever. <laughs> like there's some pretty gamey animals out there. Um, but we're also starting to see that we might also have as a function of its environment and soil health and it's the choice to what it eats on a daily basis. And then what is a stress-free harvesting process we might also have a red meat for the market that, um, is, is extremely valuable as well as a function of nutrition. And that's most exciting to us because it can demand a price point that allows us to scale and get to balance. Yeah. So I'd love to, I'd love to dive into that at a later point. I I think to, to do, to have a discussion around the nutrition, nutrition of uh, wild sourced meat in general, I think would be a a fascinating, but I know that's a whole podcast to itself. Yeah. So we're going to, and, and, We'll, we'll reschedule for, you know, months from now because we're going to take, I think, kind of an unprecedented deep dive into nutritional analysis Brilliant. on organs and all of these, like, different things as a function of, like, collagen, all of the amazing things that you wouldn't otherwise understand. And honestly, like, beef, lamb industry, like, nobody takes these dives. And, and it's being prompted by this bone broth where, you know, you're sitting at 33% more protein per ounce than any like the best regenerative beef bones on the market. And you're thinking like, what is going on here? Um, so yeah, we're excited to see where that goes. And, and I, th- I think that's a long way to answer your question of what we look like today is, is we have a model, we think it's sustainable and responsible. And we're trying to, we're trying to now figure out how best to eat this animal and introduce people to this animal and this, and this, this product. Jake, this has been an incredible story. 
to to share with all of the listeners. I haven't. I'm actually. I'm salivating slightly because I haven't had. I haven't really eaten anything today, and I'm busy looking at scrolling across your website. <laughs> and I have some of the the meat the, the meat bar and the and the uh, the venison sticks on the desk here. But I've 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 relented from opening them and eating any of them. Them I've tried. They're amazing. I haven't tried the the bone broth yet. There's two packets sitting in the freezer. So in the next two weeks or something, I need to make sure I, I eat some of that. But I would absolutely love to have you on again to talk about the nutritional aspects of it. I think we could do. I, I think some of my listeners would probably be interested in, in doing a deep dive in your actual like uh, harvesting a system and, and the mechanisms and how that works. But I know that if we dive into both of those subjects, that's like another hour and a half. So instead, I'm going to leave people on the hook to look out for when we have you and your team back on again uh, later in the year or whenever you have whenever you have time, whenever you're free. Oh yeah, we uh, very much appreciate that. Appreciate you know the opportunity to have this conversation again. Like I mentioned, we're at the stage now where we we hope that more people we're able to interact and talk with. And I know half of your audience is is in Europe, and and I think it's amazing. And and maybe this only helps realize the value of um, the game animals that they're already consuming. But yeah, we're we're really excited to see where this goes over the next couple of years and. Hopefully the next one um, is prompted by a visit to Hawaii, like we talked about. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and make that happen. I gotta get yeah. uh, <laughs> definitely. That sounds like a, a good excuse. I need to do podcast number two trip yeah. to Hawaii. Um, just no, go ahead, bud. No, I was just gonna say uh, just just finally, I wanted to people to make sure that they were aware of uh, where they could look you guys up, how they could follow you, and. Just understand also your distribution. Is it just North America right now? Uh, it's just the continental U.S. and Hawaii right now. Okay. Uh, trying to figure out what the rest of it looks like. Best place is MauiNuiVenison.com. And for somebody that's like, there's a lot of information if you dig on there. There's a lot of pages, you know, buried a little bit deep that talk about ecology. And probably the best thing is there's a 10 to 12 minute video piece on there that, um, does a great job explaining our mission and the why. And if you guys get to there, it's, it's a great place to better understand. It has amazing insight into the field operations and it'll give people a, a great look into what we're doing for sure. That's great. And I'll stick the, the link for your website in the show notes so people can uh, go and click that now and, and go and read more. Appreciate it. Um, it was a pleasure, bud. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Jake. 